Well, good morning, High Point. Hey, do you notice that uh, life is happening up there again this summer? It's good to see uh, camps coming back. What a year we just finished. I know that our, I know our kids are looking forward to going to camp, and why not, man? They've, they probably took it the hardest of all of us. They were locked down, and we all know kids don't like lockdown. So thank God that we're moving forward and things are happening. I want to thank you for being here today. Those of you who've joined us in person and, of course, those who have also joined us online. Before I get started, I do want to mention that coming Tuesday morning, this coming Tuesday at 10 a.m., we're going to be hosting a memorial service here for Jimmy Younger. He attended our church for about the last seven years. He passed away in December during the COVID time when you couldn't have funerals or anything, and his uh, son uh, came to me, and we've, we've been conversing throughout, and he thinks now is the time to do it. they got some family coming in from out of town, so if you know Jimmy and you want to come and pay your respects and show honor to him in front of his family, love for you to come here on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Well, after a uh, two-week departure, which was created by a week off, followed by Mother's Day, we're going to get back into our series from the book of John. Uh, Last week, uh, during Mother's Day, I was sharing with you about how Jesus showed honor to his mother Mary as he hung on the cross when he basically turned her over to the apostle John and said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your woman, your, 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 excuse me, woman, behold your son, and to his disciple, behold your mother. And he asked him to take care of his mom. Well, in that conversation, I also mentioned to you how that very little is written about Mary, Jesus' mother, both during and after his earthly ministry. One of the mentions of her is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's what we are going to study today. So go ahead, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, John, the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is an account of Jesus' very first miracle. Uh, He and his mother are at a wedding feast in Cana when the most embarrassing thing happens. The wine that they were serving, the wedding guest, well, it simply ran out, and it seemed nobody knew what to do. But then Mary, Jesus' mother, steps in, and we're going to read this account from John's gospel. Again, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It'll be, if you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen behind me. I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he received, excuse me, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, before we go any further, let's get a good grasp on the setting and the context of this story. Verse 1 says that this wedding and the events surrounding it occurred in Cana in Galilee. This village was very close to Nazareth. This meant that the people of Nazareth, where Jesus was born and where he was raised, were neighbors to these individuals in Cana. It also appears, as we read this, that Jesus' mother had a very important role in the festivities of this wedding. She was apparently in charge of some of the arrangements as maybe sort of a wedding host of some kind. Now, I say this because in his account, John says that Mary was personally concerned when the, when the wine ran out. I mean, if you were just a guest 
Why would you concern yourself with those issues? You just kind of roll with it and go, okay, it's unfortunate, but we will move on. In addition to that, just like we've read, uh, Mary had the authority to order the servants to do whatever it was that Jesus told them to do. And by the way, tradition says that Mary was the sister of the bridegroom's mother. Some legends even go so far as to say that the bridegroom in this particular wedding was John himself and that his mother was Salome, the sister of Mary. But this is just legend. The, the scriptures do not offer us those kind of details. But in any case, the fact that this story is told in such vivid detail clearly shows that it was an eyewitness account from the apostle John, whether as an attendee or whether as the groom. I also want you to note that in this story, Mary, Jesus' mother, is mentioned, but not Joseph, his earthly father. This is probably because by this time, Mary's husband, Joseph, has already died. Many scholars say that Joseph died when Jesus was quite, still quite young, sometime right around his 12th birthday. They also say that this explains why Jesus spent so many years in Nazareth because he was using the carpentry skills that his father Joseph had taught him to support his mother, to support his younger siblings, until which time they were old enough to take over those duties themselves. You also need to understand this. A wedding in Jesus' day was a very big deal. And the whole village or the whole town would get involved. In fact, in Palestine, the wedding festivities weren't just a day event. It went on for an entire week. The ceremony itself took place in the evening after a feast, and then the young couple were escorted to their new home. By that time, it would be dark, so they were escorted through the village with the lights of flaming torches and with a canopy over their heads. And they took the direction to their home. They took the longest route they possibly could in order that as many people as possible could wish them well, could greet them and cheer for them as they walked by. And in those days, also understand, there was no going away on a honeymoon. Instead, the newlyweds stayed at home for the next week because they were hosting a sort of a seven-day party slash open house. And during this time, both the bride and the groom were treated like a king and a queen. They wore crowns and they, they were dressed in their, their bridal robes and they were even addressed as royalty and their word was considered law. And I think the reason that we see this, this kind of party extreme is the fact that in those days there was so much poverty and there was so much hard work that there was actually very little time for fun. So this week of festivities, this week of joy, was a real highlight in the life of any person that lived in one of these villages. Everyone looked forward to it. It was indeed a very big deal. And I hope this gives you a better picture of what is going on in the text that we just read. Now Jesus is in attendance at this week-long wedding celebration, but in the middle of all this joy, in the middle of all of this festivity, something went wrong. In the middle of the celebration, they ran out of wine. And you've got to understand that in a Jewish feast, wine was indeed an essential. But at the same time, it's important for you to understand that it was not like people were, were drunk because in their culture, drunkenness was a great disgrace. And you see this in the Old Testament. Proverbs 23, verse 20 says, do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them, clothes them in rags. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and, a beer, and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. So overindulging in alcohol was considered sinful back then in the Jewish culture. And when historically we are told that back then the wine that they actually drank was a mixture composed of two parts of wine to three parts of water, you can see that to really overindulge and to get drunk really took a lot of work. In any case, wine wasn't essential, 
And so for the hosts to run out of wine was a very embarrassing thing because hospitality in the East was a sacred kind of a duty. And for the wine to literally run out would have brought terrible shame on the bride and on the bridegroom. In fact, it was a breach of hospitality. So you've got to understand that, that what we're perceiving is, well, what's so big about this? This was a very big deal. Now, as I said earlier, Mary knew what to do when the wine ran out. She came to Jesus. She told Jesus what happened. And you know, I think that Mary did this because she noticed a big difference in Jesus' life ever since he depart, his departure from Nazareth. Remember, since he has left, left home, he, he survived the 40-day wilderness temptation experience when Satan just barraged him with all kinds of temptation. He had also been baptized by John the Baptist when we heard God's, spo- God's voice spoken from heaven. Mary would have known all of this, plus she also noticed that he had returned with at least five disciples. And perhaps Mary is now thinking to herself, well, now is the time. Now is the time that that Jesus will declare himself openly as the Messiah. So with all this in mind, she went to him and she said, they have no more wine. And when you read uh, his response, it may seem to you as though Jesus was discourteous to his mother in his reply when he said this, woman, why do you involve me? I'm just curious how many of you mothers would be insulted if one of your kids came to you and said, woman, woman, where's my breakfast? Well, in Jesus' day, the word woman did not carry with it that kind of disrespectful or derogatory meaning. Back then, the the word woman was a term of endearment and respect. And as we discussed last week, Uh, during Mother's Day, it's the same words that Jesus used while he was dying on the cross. When he looked down and he said, woman, behold your son, when he left his mother in John's care. It's the same word that Caesar Augustus used to address Cleopatra. It's the same phrase or title that is used in Greek mythology. I'm saying that back then, far from being rough and discourteous, the, the term woman was a title of affection. It was a title of respect. But the word woman is not the only part of Jesus' response that you might think sounds disrespectful. Because Jesus' words following that, when he said, why do you involve me? And another another translation says, what have I to do with thee? Well, they sound a little disrespectful. But again, back then, those words were not. They were common conversational phrases. When it was used angrily, it could indicate disagreement, it could indicate reproach, but when spoke gently, as I'm sure it was, as Jesus spoke to his mother, it indicated only misunderstanding. It was sort of like Jesus was saying to her, don't worry, mom, I got this covered. Leave things into my hands, I'll settle them in my own way. In short, when Jesus said to Mary, said that to Mary, he was telling her that he knew what to do and that he would deal with the situation in his way. And if you doubt my explanation of that, then you really need to look at Mary's response because it showed that she didn't appear to feel slighted or disrespected. She replied in a way that shows that she had confidence that Jesus would take care of this problem because immediately she left the matter into his hands and she went back to whatever responsibilities she had in, 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 as her hostess duties at that wedding. So after Mary leaves, Jesus instructed the servants to take six stone water jugs and to fill them full of water. And that was no small task because each of these jars held 20 to 30 gallons of, of liquid. Verse six says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Specifically, the water that was to be held in these containers was used to cleanse the feet of the people when they entered into the house. Remember back then, the roads were not paved. And depending on the conditions of the weather, you either had really dusty, dirty feet or you had really muddy, dirty feet. 
So you needed a good supply of water on hand, especially when you are hosting a full week of wedding guests. A second purpose for this water was for hand washing. Strict Jews washed their hands in those days before dinner, and many times they would wash their hands between each course of the dinner. And there was no running water in those days, so you needed to have these kind of jars on hand. Now, I've heard a lot of people, or or heard uh, many who don't believe in God, express and try to explain away Jesus' miracle. They say that these jars that had been emptied, they, they were jars that had been emptied, but that there was some concentrated wine that was still left in the bottle, bottom of these jars. They say that when they filled them full of water, it made wine, but verse 6 shows that this is not at all true. These were water jars used for holding water, period. They were not used for holding wine. I also want you to note that Jesus commanded the jars to be filled to where he said to the brim. And John includes this small detail to make clear that there is nothing else but water that was put into them. No wine was added. Verse 8, it says, Then he told them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the banquet. He was kind of the head waiter. He was the guy who put everyone into their seats. He was the one who was in charge of the overall operation of the feast. And when he tasted it, this is what he says in verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus turned those 180 gallons of water into wine. And not just wine, but he turned it into the best wine. Problem was averted, and what a special wedding gift he gave that couple. But there's something else that comes through to me very loud and clear in this encounter, and I feel a need to share it with you this morning. The gospel record shows that Jesus was perfectly at home in this place of celebration. That he would have enjoyed this and he would have enjoyed any wedding feast that he was to attend. And believe me when I tell you, I know a lot about weddings because I've been involved in so many that I can't even count them at this point in time. And as an expert on weddings, I know a lot about weddings because I've been involved in so many of them. And and, and there comes a time in every single wedding, when all the tension of preparing and decorating and planning is finally over. The nervousness of, the, of the, the bride and the groom, all about the ceremony is done. They got through their vows without making a mistake. Nobody tripped going down the aisle. There's no more catering decisions that need to be made. No more invitations that need to be sent. They don't have to think anymore about who's going to sit next to Aunt Bessie at the reception. All of that has been decided. All of the work, all of the stress, all of the preparation is over. And there's this moment that comes when the tension is finally gone. And it is this time when everybody who is present finally begins to relax And they start to actually enjoy the reception. They begin to enjoy just having fun, being around each other, and celebrating the wedding. Now, as a frequent observer of all of this, I would like to say that I believe that this moment that I'm referring to often happens when the DJ takes over. He plays one of those timeless songs to get everyone out onto the dance floor for a a line dance or something. And there what you find is is children from from toddlers all the way up, parents, grandparents, everyone is out there celebrating together. And you know what? I personally think that Jesus would do far more than just watch. I think that he would be out there on that floor celebrating with the bride and the groom and everyone else. He'd enjoy the food. He would enjoy the fellowship and the joy of those special wedding moments. And my belief in that isn't just based upon my my opinion, because the Bible makes it very clear to all of us that Jesus was anything but a cosmic killjoy. Jesus was and Jesus is still pro-joy. 
And I think that this is really important for us to understand. Why do I even bring this up? Because there are certain religious people who claim to be Christians and they shed gloom wherever they go. For some reason, they, they are suspicious of joy and happiness. I can't figure it out. It seems somehow that they believe to participate in some of the joy, some of the happiness at that moment might ha- somehow make them appear as less spiritual. And they justify their lack of participation by complaining and grumbling about the activities that are going on around them. And I believe that this, this encounter, this, this incident shows that holier than thou, grumblers and complainers like this are not at all following Jesus' lead. Because he's not like that at all. Jesus is a lover of joy. And if we truly follow him and imitate him as we are called to do, we should be the same. Rejoicing is what we do if we want to be like our Lord. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says, do, not, or do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become, may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. In other words, we are most like our Heavenly Father when we refuse to grumble and complain. We are to do everything without negativism. British novelist J.B. Priestley, by his own admission, said that he spread negative germs everywhere through a bad attitude and what he called an acrid tongue. Listen to what he wrote. I've always been a grumbler. I am designed for the part. Sagging face, weighty underlip, rumbling, resonant voice. Money couldn't buy a better grumbling outfit. You ever been around someone like that? You ever been around a Christian like that? You ever find yourself acting like that? You know what I mean. I'm talking about competing to find fault in anything and everything as if it makes you wiser, if it makes you appear smarter and more holy than everyone else in the room. The only reason I bring this up is because I'm a pastor who loves his church and he loves the people in his church and I don't want to see my church or the people hurt. And the fact is that people who practice negativism, they don't just hurt themselves, but they rub off on other people. And that hurts the church. Complainers and grumblers, by their very presence, drain you like the cold winter drains power out of the battery of a vehicle sitting around. And as Christians, we have so much to be joyful for. As I've said many times before, if you're happy, would you notify your face? (laughs) There is nothing spiritual about wearing a frown. There just isn't. There's nothing spiritual about never engaging in the festivities at a wedding. There's nothing spiritual about being negative. It's not a spiritual gift. We have no business grumbling and complaining, and it is ridiculous to allow negativism to take control. It is unchristian-like to make it your goal to complain and to sit around like a, like a frog on a stump somewhere. <laughs> this story from John shows us that Jesus is one who loved joy. He loves celebration. So if we are his disciples, and again, if we are modeling our lives after him as we should, then we should be also. Remember in John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And do you remember what the angels said at his birth? They said, we bring you tidings of great joy which shall be unto all men. Jesus brings joy. And we see this by the fact that he did his first miracle in a joyful setting. And I think that the reason that the Holy Spirit prompted John to include this of all miracles, because he says there were other miracles that were never documented, I believe the reason the Holy Spirit prompted John to bring this one out is so that everyone would know that the spirituality that Jesus possessed and taught about and made available was not drab and it was not lifeless. 
This story is included to make sure that we know that Jesus believed in marriage, that he believed in festivity, and that he enjoyed a good wedding reception like anyone else did. And by the way, this would later on be a criticism made against him by who? By the holier-than-thou Pharisees, that he had too much fun. In Matthew eleven nineteen, he said this, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you and I can't be like the Pharisees. We must rejoice because we have so much to rejoice about. Amen? Okay, that's enough context and sorry for the rant. But with all this in mind, I want to consider this morning a very important question. Where do we go when our wine runs out? Of course, I'm speaking symbolically here. What I'm asking is where do we go when we have a need that we can't meet on our own or when we have a problem that we can't seem to face by ourselves? And see, I believe this story underscores our need that during these times, we must go to Jesus. He's the only one that can help us. And so this morning, I want to emphasize this truth by explaining why we go to Jesus when our wine runs out. The first answer is simple, because we know Jesus can do big things. When you and I face the impossible challenges of life, we go to Jesus because we know that he is able to help us. We know that Jesus can do the impossible. As his disciples learned, Jesus was and still is a miracle worker. And by the way, it's a good time to remind you that according to John, the main reason that Jesus performed miracles, or as he called them, signs, was to get people's attention. It was to cause them not to focus on the miracle, but instead to focus on the miracle worker. Miracles were done as signs that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, that he was, in fact, the Son of the living God. They were signs that would lead people to believe in him and to put their trust and their faith in him. Do you remember John's purpose statement for the reason he gave for writing this gospel in the first place? I shared it with you in week one of this series. It's found in John 20 verses 30 and 31, when he said this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John tells us that this first sign or this first miracle helped to accomplish that goal. Look at verse 11 again, where it says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Mary already knew who Jesus was. She knew that he was the son of almighty God. And this is why she trusted him to deal with this wedding stopping problem. She knew that as God in the flesh, he had the power to take care of literally anything. So she went to him when a miracle was needed. She went to Jesus when the wine ran out. And we need to have Mary's caliber of faith. It's a faith that leads us to bring our problems, to bring our challenges, to, to, to even the big ones, to the Lord. Because no problem is too big for our God to handle. A.W. Tozer wrote, God possesses what no creature can, an incomprehensible plentitude of power, a potency that is absolute. And God himself said this in Jeremiah 32, 27. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? <laughs> do, you think so? do you think there is anything? Of course, the answer is no. Our almighty God 
can do anything he chooses to do. To say that there is something that God cannot do. To say that God can't do a miracle, which is defined as something that occurs outside of natural law. To say that, in essence, is to to deify the law. To make it God. And by the way, you've got to remember that the natural law itself is a miracle from God. Author J.N. Hawthorne wrote this, miracles are unusual events caused by God. The laws of nature are generalizations about ordinary events caused by him. In other words, miracles are going on around us every minute. The fact that you can hear what I'm saying is a miracle. The fact that you can breathe air, the fact that your heart can pump thousands upon thousands of gallons of blood through your body every day, that's a miracle too. And as Christians, if we are to do anything great for God, anything that lasts, it requires us to believe in his limitless power, power that can handle the big issues of life. Because the more we believe he can do something, the more apt we will be to attempt to do great things for him. Do you see the connection there? Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he once preached at the chapel at Princeton University. And when he finished, his old Hebrew professor was in the crowd, came up to him and complimented his message. And he said this to him, I'm glad you're a big godder, Donald. And Barnhouse asked him what he meant by that statement. This is what he said. Some men have a little God and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of the scriptures. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You have a great God, Donald, and he will bless your ministry. That leads me to ask you all this morning, Are you a big godder or are you a little godder? Do you believe that God is truly omnipotent and all-powerful? Is he powerful enough to heal your marriage? Is he strong enough to provide for your physical needs? And is he wise enough to know what those needs are? Is your God able to make you an effective parent? We all know that it can be challenging raising children today. Is your heavenly father up to it? Can he help you to do your job? Can he help you with the challenges that you face in your career day in and day out? I mean, can he even help you find a job? In, in his, is his hearing sensitive enough to be able to hear your cries and your prayers? Well, yes to all of those. And yes to a million more. My God can do anything but fail. In fact, God can even, can even miraculously transform a life just like he transformed that water and turned it into wine. If we focus only on the stone pot water pots in that story, we're missing the whole point of the story because Jesus is all about total transformation. As someone once put it, he turned water into wine, and he turns frowns into smiles. He turns whimpers of fear into songs of hope. He turns deserts into gardens, sorrow into joy, sin into grace, death into life. Whenever Jesus comes into the life of a human being, there comes a new quality, which is just like turning the water into wine. Without Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, life is dull. It is stale. It is flat. It is boring. The world will tell you that's not true. But you catch that world in a moment of clarity when they're not out partying their brains out and inebriated beyond what they can think. They will tell you that this is true. Life is dull without Jesus. Without Jesus, we're dull. And and John is writing this gospel, understand, 70 years after Jesus' crucifixion, 
So he has had literal decades to think about and to meditate on all of his years with Jesus. And so he's saying with great clarity, wherever Jesus went, wherever he came into a life, it was like turning water into wine. And you know, I believe that maturing followers and believers in Jesus Christ, we understand this. We know that Jesus has unlimited power, enough power to handle any problem that we face, no matter how big it is. So we go to him when our wine runs out. We go to Jesus when we face impossible situations. We cast all of our cares on him. And that leads me to my second point. We do this because we know something else. Jesus cares about the little things in our lives as well. Remember, Jesus did this, his first miracle in a tiny little village in Galilee. He wasn't surrounded by vast multitudes, no. Jesus first manifest his glory in a small home with a bunch of humble people. His first miracle wasn't to raise the dead. It it wasn't to feed a multitude. It was done to save a family, a poor family, from hurt and humiliation. This shows that God cares about every problem that we face, both big and small. Therefore, we we can come boldly to his throne, no matter what the size of our burden, And we can know, as the scriptures say, that God sympathizes with our weaknesses and that in his tremendous mercy, he will give us the grace that we need to help us in our time of need. This knowledge is why we send out prayer requests to our prayer team here every day here at High Point that is filled with big problems such as cancer diagnoses, as well as smaller problems, like people's requests for guidance in in parenting their children or or guidance in, in a struggle that they're having in the workplace. We go to Jesus with our big things and we go to Jesus with our small things. And in either case, we know that he has the power to take care of them. We have learned that God welcomes all of our prayers. We further learn that it is during those time of prayer when we are uh, communicating with him and in his presence that we learn to deal with the issues of life. There's an old legend of the days when Jesus was a little baby in Nazareth. The legend says that when people felt tired, when they felt worried or upset, they would say, let's go and look at Mary's child. And they would go and they would look at Jesus and somehow their troubles would roll away. Of course, that's only a legend. But I can speak from personal experience that when I turn to Jesus, whenever things go wrong, I am not at all disappointed because he makes my burden his burden. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 5, 7 where it says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Not just the big ones but the little ones too. Cast all your cares on him. Because as one uh, translation puts it, you are his personal concern. I like that. So I personally will trust God no matter what. Because I know he will never stop caring for me. And I furthermore know that he will never stop caring for you. And this first miracle shows us that our Lord the creator and the sustainer of the universe was concerned about a wedding snafu. It tells me that the joy of these hardworking peasants in Cana and in Nazareth, well, they were important to him. And in my walk with Jesus, I have discovered his intervention in both small things and in both big things. Those less noticeable things and those things that are out there like a billboard. And he's calmed my fears over things that weren't really worth being fearful of. But in my human nature, I chose to fear them. He has helped me to find peace during many storms within my life. And many times when I've had questions of how something was going to turn out, and those fears came over me. He has helped me to maintain joy 
even when the circumstances surrounding me weren't always that joyful. And I could go on and on. And the point is, you could too. If we all of a sudden decided to have an open mic here and have you all come forward and share what God has done for you and how we'd be here all day. We'd be here probably until tomorrow night as you shared story after story. He's helped me with the big things and he's helped me with the little things. And and out of the two, I would say the fact that Jesus has helped me with the little, seemingly insignificant things Well, that has only deepened my relationship with him all that much more. To know that he cares about those little things. Jesus is not some miracle worker who comes into town, does his thing, and then leaves. Jesus comes alongside of me in all parts of my life and your parts of your life. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He cares about anything that concerns you and me because he cares about us. And we must be careful not to get caught up in this self-sufficiency that is so prevalent in our culture today. It's taught to us from the time we were little. We're Americans. We're, we're self-sufficient. We will find a solution to a problem. We've got the money. We've got the knowledge. We've got the creativity. We can make it happen. And what happens when we have that mindset and we think we can solve all of our problems, we don't. We just medicate them or we go past them. The problem is still there. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is we, we find ourselves personally running out of wine. We run out of it. We don't have the strength, the caliber of the strength or the wisdom to deal with these issues on our own. On our own. And so we run out of wine. And that's when we need Jesus to perform a miracle in our life just like he did at that wedding in Cana. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me close this down? In light of what I have covered this morning from the book of John, I want to do something today that we haven't done in quite a while because of COVID. And we haven't done it because we've tried to be respectful of everybody's health and everybody keeping people safe. But today we are going to open this altar today. And I am officially saying that as of today, moving forward, we are going to go back to the way we used to do things, and that is to do altar calls at the end of every service. I want to open up this altar today to a multitude of people for a multitude of reasons. And the first ones I want to address are those of you who've run out of wine. You're empty. You have nothing to pour out. Somebody asks you about Jesus, you've got nothing to share because nothing's inside of you. You're literally dry spiritually this morning. And I can understand it. We just come from a very challenging year. We've been isolated. We haven't been around people much. And I, and I am aware how when you're isolated, you only feel more isolated and you feel further away from God. I understand it. And that's why I'm addressing this first. You are in need of a refilling of the Holy Spirit. You need to have a moment in God's presence here at this altar today. Some of you are here and you have a real need. You are in need of some supernatural direction and guidance for a looming decision in your life right now. Some of you need help in your workplace. Some of you need help with your marriage. Some of you need help with your personal finances. Some of you need help in a relationship that is broken down. Some of you need a healing touch of God in your physical body. You have received a diagnosis and you are fearful and you need a physical touch from God this morning. Some of you need joy in your heart once again. Somewhere along the line, you've lost your joy and you need the joy of the Lord because it tells us in the word of God, it is our strength and it is what you are lacking. Some of you are here, and as I'm talking, you realize you haven't spent any time in a long time in praise and worship of God. 
You haven't spent a whole lot of time thanking him and praising him for his goodness to you and your family, how he got you through this pandemic. And you need to come down to this altar and you need to give the Lord some praise. And you may ask, why the altar? Why can't I just do it from my seat? Well, the truth is you can, but let me tell you something that I believe with all my heart. I can't give you a scripture to back this up. I'm just telling you what I've experienced and what I believe and what I've seen. I believe when we get to the point of not just realizing that we can't manage this problem or this struggle or this issue that's going on in my life anymore on my own, and when we take that public leap of faith to walk 20 feet down the aisle to, to kneel at this altar, I believe, High Point, that there is power in that. There is power in that. Mary could have just sat at that wedding feast feeling bad that the wine had run out, but she didn't. She realized how bad this looked upon this this family, and she went to Jesus. Mary took action. She went to the only one who could solve that problem, and she laid it all on the line. And then she turned her burden over to Jesus, and she walked away and knew that he would take care of it. And when you come to this altar, that's exactly what you're doing. You're bringing your need and you're laying it at the foot of the cross. And when you're done, you leave and you leave it here. So he can carry that burden for you. And I believe that the obedience that is involved by physically walking down here, it opens up the heaven, the heavens. And I want to read to you something that I received this week from a friend of mine who writes a blog regarding this very thing, the altar experience. And he titled this, When Our Head Head Fights Our Heart. And I've taken excerpts out of it. I can't read the whole thing, but I took out what I feel is the most important. My friend Larry is telling a story of when he went to a denominational meeting of some kind, and the speaker ended the service by opening up the altar to a bunch of Christians, most people of who were in ministry. He writes this. The third verse of the song was completed and there was a battle escalating in my heart. There was just one problem. I had no idea why. There was no particular sin to be confessed, no decision to be surrendered. As we were about to sing the final verse of this traditional invitation song, my heart said, go forward. But my head, finding no compelling reason to do so, restrained me. Finally, midway through that final verse, I slipped out of my row and I started to walk to the front of that arena. We seem to think that whenever we deem ourselves ready and willing, Jesus will be there as if we determine when we will encounter him. This is not what the word tells us. We are warned in Hebrews, today if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. There are moments and seasons when Jesus is drawing near. It is up to us to adjust to him and to obey his prompting, lest we missed a divinely designed moment. I was about halfway on my journey to the front of that auditorium, walking in sheer obedience, questioning my decisions with each step, when suddenly Jesus drew near. His presence overwhelmed me. And I began to cry as I wondered if I would make it to the front before collapsing in a puddle of tears. These weren't tears of repentance. It was just, I was just overwhelmed by his presence. Apparently, his intention all along was to just meet with me, to touch me, to overwhelm me with himself. To think the God of the universe just wanted to meet with me It was another spiritual marker in my life. You see, our enemy works very, very hard at playing games with our minds. And because we're human beings, we're very susceptible. He makes us actually worry about what other people might think if we choose to come down to the altar. I'll give you a few examples. Well, I'm a pastor. People need to think I've got my act together, so I therefore I can't come down and pray because they'll think something's wrong with their pastor is a chink in his armor. Here's another one. I'm a board member. People trust me to make decisions for this church. If they see me coming down to this altar, they might think that I am weak in some way. 
Here's another one. I've been serving the Lord for 67 and a half years. And if I go down to that altar, maybe some of these new Christians are going to think Christianity isn't what it should be. And it goes on and it goes on. This is the classic example of when our heads fight our heart. Don't let him win. Don't let the enemy win. Sometimes you just need to be obedient to the voice of God, to the calling of God, to receive that touch that you so desperately need, to receive that answer to your prayer. So again, the worship team's going to sing this song. While they're doing that, I want to open up this altar. We're going to spend some time with the Lord in prayer, and then I will close this service out in a final prayer. Scott.
attended a Pentecostal church before, that was a message in tongues, followed by an interpretation. The Holy Spirit gives us utterance to speak messages in tongues. It happened in the second chapter of Acts when the day of Pentecost happened. And as we read through the scriptures, we, we are told that if a message comes in a public gathering like this in tongues, as our sister did, there must be an interpretation. An interpretation is basically a repeat of what was said in our language so we understand what it is. If someone just stands up and speaks in tongues and we don't have an interpretation, no one is really edified by that other than the person that spoke in tongues. And so our sister here had a message in tongues followed by the interpretation. And, and I know you probably couldn't hear her. That's why I almost wish I had a microphone on the, on the aisle in case somebody has a message because it is the most beautiful thing that you will ever hear. It is a message from the throne room of God and it always ties in perfectly with what I have presented and God told us today to not leave here discouraged, that he will meet all of your need, and that he gave you a gift today. He gave us a gift. And for those who, who came down to the altar, for whatever reason, I believe that we are going to hear answers to prayers from what happened here today. I believe that we're going to see people healed. I believe relationships are going to be mended. It may not happen today, but the, the, the thing starts today because we've laid that burden at the foot of the cross and we trust in God to take care of it. But the message, if you could hear it, it's so beautiful and it's nothing to be afraid of. And a lot of people have made a lot of fun of charismatic and Pentecostal churches, but it is the full gospel of Jesus Christ. It is biblical and it is powerful. And I am glad that you're here today and I'm glad that you had an opportunity to experience it. While those at the altar continue to pray and they can stay here as long as they want, I want to go ahead and close this service in prayer. If you'd all stand to your feet and bow your heads with me. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit. Thank you for your many blessings that you bestow upon us day by day. As I was praying with the worship team this morning, I said, God, you have truly given us everything that we need to live God-honoring lives in this world that we live in today. And my desire is that, that myself, my family, my church family, that we all live lives that honor you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for giving us the power of your spirit to be able to do just that. Thank you that in this this scripture, this, this story that we read, that you show us where we need to go when we run dry. Running dry is something that happens to us as human beings. Lord, we know that. And we also know that you are the living water and we must come to you. And I thank you for those who came down and met with you here today. I thank you for those who met with you from their seat. And I look forward to hearing great responses and results from what went on in this service today. I thank you, Spirit of God, for being so real, being so near, and so comforting today during this entire service. And God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that, that you've redeemed us from our sin. And Lord, if there's anyone in this place today or watching online who does not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would reach out and just pray a simple prayer, acknowledging you as the Son of God, realizing that that you are the only way to God the Father, asking you for forgiveness of their sin and to become the Lord of their life. And God, I know you are faithful and you will do just that. And I thank you for those even now who might be making that decision. And God, I pray as we go about our way today and throughout this week that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the paths we take, the, the things we do, the places we go, the conversations that we have, those conversations would build people up and not tear them down. I pray that we would be bright lights in this dark world and that brightness would be because of your love that comes shining through us. And that people who don't know you would experience that light. They would see it. It would be all over us and they would be compelled to ask us, what is it that's different about you as happened so many times? And Father, when that door opens up, that we would have the courage to tell them about your goodness, who you are, lead them to Christ, or invite them to church with us so that they can experience the one true God. 
I also pray that you'll keep us safe, Father, between now and next week. Keep us safe from, from COVID, from any other sickness or disease that might come. I pray that you'll keep us safe from any danger that might befall us, accidents and things like that, until we can gather together again as a family and worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you for this day. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your power. And I thank you for the example in your word that shows us that there truly is none like you. You are all that we need. And I thank you for that. We ask all of these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you.